Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 21. Luke continues to narrate Paul's emotional and perilous journey from Macedonia toward Jerusalem. He had to lay down some false trails so as to avoid mischief makers and saboteurs. He had to raise a young boy from the dead, and he had to say a tearful goodbye to a group of very close friends. And still, he's just barely halfway home. Pick up the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Let's just pause here and note the oddity of that paragraph. I'm not referring to all the travel details. I'm I'm referring to the fact that Luke mentions that people were saying through the Spirit that Paul ought not to go on to Jerusalem. And yet in verse 5, we are told that Paul carried on toward Jerusalem. What are we supposed to make of that? Wayne Grudem is very helpful here. He says, it is significant because Paul simply disobeyed their words, something he would not have done if he had thought that they were speaking the very words of God. That comes from Wayne Grudem's helpful book called The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today. It it looks here like Paul heard these folks who were talking to him as they perceived the Holy Spirit directing them, and he took what was good and discarded what was not. He tested it. He discerned it. He did not despise their prophecy, but neither did he receive it without exercising his own judgment. It sounds like Paul is abiding by the counsel that he gives to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 21, Paul says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. I think this has to be taken as another indication in the book of Acts that the gift of prophecy has changed somewhat in the transition from the Old Covenant to the New. We talked about this, for example, back in chapter 2. In Peter's sermon uh, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he says that something about prophecy has changed now. He says in verses 17 and 18, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So it 
seems like Peter is saying there that because of the broad general falling of the Holy Spirit upon the church on the day of Pentecost, prophecy will no longer be something that just one or two people are going to exercise within the covenant community. And in a sense, this fulfills the hope that was expressed by Moses way back in Numbers chapter 11, 29. Moses said that he wished that all of God's people would be prophets, would prophesy. Joel said that this would happen sometime before the great and glorious day of the Lord. And then Peter says in the day of Pentecost, it's happening right now. Right now, God is pouring out his spirit generally upon the covenant community, such that rich and poor, male and female, high and low, they're all prophesying. They shall all prophesy. That's what he says. Now, not with the same authority as the apostles who carry on and flesh out the authoritative ministry of Jesus. In the, in the New Testament, the apostles are, are sort of the counterpart to the Old Testament prophets. So you have apostolic prophets, which is a whole different type of prophets. But in some sense, all Christians filled with the Holy Spirit are able now to speak the word of God with the help of the Spirit of God for the edification of the people of God. That's got to be what Paul is, or what Peter is saying there in, in Acts chapter 2. But of course, it, it must be tested. Christians can be confused. The, the devil knows how to disguise himself as an angel of light. Christians can garble what began as good guidance. All of that can happen. And therefore, these spirit-empowered words of encouragement must be submitted to the authority of the scriptures and the discernment of the receiving party. That seems to be what we're seeing here. We pick up the story again in verse 7. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Again, to state the obvious, the gift of prophecy seems a little different now on the other side of Pentecost. First of all, it appears more common than, in, than it did in the Old Testament. Prophets were relatively rare in the Old Testament. You could have long periods of time when there was no prophet of the Lord to be found in Israel. Here in this chapter, we are literally tripping over prophets. Philip's got four of them living in his own house. Now, we should probably say female prophets were not unknown in the Old Testament. Miriam was a prophetess. Huldah was a prophetess. And I think we would probably want to include Anna on that list, even though her story is told in the New Testament in Luke chapter 2. For all intents and purposes, she's an Old Testament prophetess. So... The female part's not the part that's new. It's the sheer commonness that is noteworthy in this chapter. And again, this seems like the fulfillment of what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Now, to speak of someone having a gift, 
as in a gift of prophecy, does not mean that they have something that other people don't have in some general sense. Think of it this way. We understand this when we talk about evangelism. All Christians are supposed to be evangelizing, but some are said to have the gift of evangelism. We understand that to mean that they are particularly helped of God with respect to this activity. And I think we'd want to say the same here. Peter said that in some sense, all believers now would be able to speak the word of God with the help of the spirit of God to the people of God. But apparently, some are going to be more blessed and more helped of God in so doing. And we're meeting several of them in this passage. And once again, we notice that Paul feels free to ignore their spiritual counsel. He, he doesn't assume that Agabus the prophet is infallible. Paul is an apostle. And he understands that as an apostle, he has a far superior gifting and a far clearer understanding of God's will generally and God's will for his travel specifically. So he receives Agabus's word. He doesn't despise it, but neither does he submit to it, right? So here, here, here we see the word of a prophet is in submission to the word of an, an apostle, an apostolic prophet. By the way, this is no different than what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, he says, hey, listen, I think it's great if prophets want to speak in church. Understand this, though, they have to submit to what I'm saying as an apostle. Obviously, not having active apostles in the church today, we would say everything that is said, particularly if it's going to be used in corporate worship, has to conform to the apostolic witness. It has to be submitted to Scripture. Now, just to return to our particular text, I'm not sure that you'd want to develop a theory of spiritual gifts or a doctrine of New Testament prophecy from this chapter alone, but I definitely think you'd want to consider it. You'd want to look carefully at what you're seeing here if you ever choose to develop a theory, a doctrine of spiritual gifts. Now, however you want to define these things, and it's very careful that you do define these things because Christians use a lot of these same words and they mean very different things so we can step on each other's toes without even meaning to. But however you want to define these things, here's what we see. Paul is heading to Jerusalem under an ever-darkening cloud. Spirit is warning Paul of the danger and the conflict that lies ahead. Some of that warning may get garbled as it passes through the lens of these people's love and compassion for the Apostle Paul. Maybe he was moving them to intercessory prayer. Maybe he was just wanting to communicate a sense of the gravity. We see the pathos. We see the emotion. We should probably notice that in some sense, that influences how the guidance of the Holy Spirit is communicated. The story continues in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now, we should be careful to note here that there is no rift between Paul and James or between Paul and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. The problem is not with the official church in Jerusalem. The problem is with some new converts who remain very zealous for the law. James and the elders are excited to hear about the progress of the mission among the Gentiles. They are not the problem. It is some of these younger converts who have zeal, but evidently a somewhat immature and ill-formed understanding of the gospel. 
There's a sizable group of them. And James and the elders are worried because they seem to have developed a distorted understanding of who Paul is and what he's trying to accomplish. The story continues in the second half of verse 20. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So there's a misunderstanding. There's a rumor going around. Paul has been teaching and insisting that Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to become Christians. He has been insisting on that. And he secured the agreement of the Jerusalem Council on that point. But, but this point has not been decided. Do Jews need to stop acting like Jews in order to be Christians? That's a completely different question. And it was not specifically addressed at the Jerusalem Council. And, and, and so the rumor is that Paul is telling Jews to no longer circumcise their children and to no longer eat kosher. Paul's telling everybody, don't circumcise your kids and let's eat a hot dog and, and let's not keep any of the Jewish traditions. That's the rumor. Now, to be clear, there is no record in Acts of Paul saying any such thing. But to be honest, it isn't hard to imagine how that rumor might've got started. Paul did say stuff that, you know, if you tilt your head to one side, kind of sounded like that. He could say to Gentiles, for example, as in Galatians 4, 9 to 11, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now, to be clear, he's speaking to Gentiles here, but he is referring to worthless elementary principles and denigrating those who observe days, months, and seasons. That could easily be misunderstood as an expression of disregard for Judaism on the other side of the cross. And then again, in places like Galatians 5.6, he said stuff like, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So it it does kind of sound like Paul didn't think that circumcision mattered one way or the other. But on the other hand, he had just recently completed a Nazarite vow. And he regularly attended synagogue, at least until he got kicked out. But still, he had excellent attendance at synagogue. And here he is in Jerusalem explicitly so as to participate in the Feast of Pentecost. So let's just admit that his teaching and his example leave room for misunderstanding. And let's also admit, this is a tricky issue. And emotions are running high. And misplaced zeal on the part of some younger believers has created a potentially volatile situation. It's very understandable. So the elders in Jerusalem propose a conciliatory gesture. It's very wise. We hear about that in verse 23. They say, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. 
But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, as cultural outsiders 2,000 years later, this little bit of detail can be very hard to make sense of. We've got these four fellows who are completing a Nazarite vow, and Paul, in, in some way, is going to come alongside them and pay for them to complete the process. But how will Paul's vow coincide with their vow? That's what we don't quite understand. Paul has already finished his vow. He did that quite a while ago. David Peterson's explanation is helpful here. He says, On his return from Gentile territory, it is likely that Paul would have needed a seven-day period of ritual purification before participating in temple worship, closed quote. So Paul's purification ritual is not another Nazarite vow. It was a standard Jewish purification ritual for travelers who'd passed through Gentile lands on their way to the temple. So Paul arranges for his own vow to end at the same time as the four Nazarite vows, and he goes with those fellows and pays their expenses. This would communicate two things. It would communicate, first of all, that Paul himself was still a practicing Jew, and it would communicate his piety and goodwill towards these young converts who were still very zealous for the law. It was a gesture of peace. Listen, wise people pursue peace as far as conscience allows. Luke continues the story in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Let's just pause here and notice something very important. Let's notice that it isn't the zealous young Jewish Christian converts who caused this riot. It's actually a group of Jews from Asia, that is to say from Ephesus. These are not Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, the target of Paul's goodwill gesture. These are non-Christian Jews from Ephesus. That's important to see. This story would have a very different feel to it if it represented a split in the Jerusalem church. But it doesn't. This is the ongoing split within Judaism. Verse 30 says, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So this is your 
your typical Middle Eastern street mob, and it nearly spelled the end of Brother Paul. Thankfully, there was a Roman garrison immediately adjacent to the temple for just this reason. The Romans knew very well that tensions ran high during the festivals, so they were on maximum alert here. And Luke tells us that the tribune himself, later identified as Claudius Lysias, took charge of the cohort and immediately took Paul into custody. Verse 37 says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying... And that's where chapter 21 ends. It's an odd place to end the chapter. But we are reminded by that, that these chapter and verse markings that we're so accustomed to were not part of the original documents and were added later so that people like you and me could more easily find our place in the text. Now, the revolt mentioned here refers to a false prophet from Egypt who came to Jerusalem in about AD 54 and who gathered a rabble army on the Mount of Olives. The Roman governor Felix dispatched troops who massacred his ragtag force. But in the chaos, the Egyptian got away. With all the tension around the city and all the foreigners coming in and out, the tribune initially assumes that Paul is that Egyptian false prophet. And that's just a reminder to us of what a chaotic time it was in the history of the Roman Empire and in the history of the Jewish people. The world was falling apart, and the Romans were trying very hard to keep the lid on the powder keg known as Jerusalem. But everybody understood that the world was about to change. The gospel of Jesus Christ was pure dynamite, and the Apostle Paul was just the man to light the fuse. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.